Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth, and I forgot what number I'm on, number 15, 16. And we're in the chapter called It's Decline in Roman numeral 3. Having dwelt at some length on the nature of spiritual decline and pointed out some of the principal causes thereof, a few words should be said on its insidiousness. Sin is a spiritual disease, Psalm 103.3, and like so many others, it works silently and unsuspecting by us. And before we are aware of it, our health is gone. We are not sufficiently on our guard against the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13. Unless we resist its first workings, it soon obtains an advantage over us. Hence, we are exhorted to take good heed. Therefore, unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God, Joshua 23.11. <clears throat> for our spiritual decline may be traced back to a dominion of our love for him, a diminution of our love for him. The love of God is of heavenly extraction, but being planted in an unfriendly soil that requires guarding and watering, we are not only surrounded with objects which attract our affections and operate as rivals to the blessed God, but have an inward propensity to depart from him. In the early stages of the Christian life, love is usually fresh and fervent. The first believing views of the gospel fill the heart with amazement and praise to the Lord and a flow of grateful affection to the spontaneous outcome. The soul is profoundly moved, wholly absorbed with God's unspeakable gift, and weaned from all other objects. This is what God terms, uh, Jeremiah 2, to the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals. It is then that the one who has found such peace and joy exclaims, I love the Lord because he <coughs> hath heard my voice, my supplication for mercy, because he hath inclined his ear unto me. Therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. Psalm 116, 1 and 2. At that season, the renewed soul can scarcely conceive it possible to forget him who has done such great things for it or to lapse back into any measure to his former loves and lords. But if after 20 years of cares and temptations have passed over him without producing this effect, <coughs> he will indeed be happy. There are some who experience no decline, but that is far from being the case with all. There are those who speak of the Christians departing from his first love as a matter of course who regard it as something inevitable. Not a few elderly religious professors who have themselves become cold and carnal if they ever had life in them will seek to bring young and happy Christians to this doleful and God-dishonoring state of mind. With a sarcastic smile, they will tell the babe in Christ, though you are on the moment of enjoyment today, rest assured it will not be long until you come down. But this is erroneous and utterly misleading. Not so do the apostles act towards converts. When Barnabas ministered the young Christians at Corinth, he saw the grace of God and was glad. <coughs> and so far from leading them to expect a state of decline from their in initial fervor, assurance and joy exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Acts 11.23 Well, the great head of the church informed the Ephesian saints that he had it against them because they had left their first love, Revelation 2.4. There is no reason or necessity in the nature of things, why there should be any abatement of Christians' love, zeal, or comfort. Those objects and considerations which first gave rise to them have not lost their force. There has been no change in the grace of God, the efficacy of Christ's blood, the readiness of the Spirit to guide us into all truth. Christ is still the friend of sinners, able to save them under the uttermost that come to God by Him. <coughs> so far from there being good or just reason, why we should decline in our first love. The very opposite is the case. Our first views of Christ and his gospel were most inadequate and defective. If we follow on to know the Lord, we shall obtain a better acquaintance with him. 
a clear perception of his perfections, his suitability to our case, or his sufficiency. He should therefore be more highly esteemed by us, said the Apostle. This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, Philippians 1.9. So far from himself relapsing, as he neared the end of his course, forgetting the things that were behind, he reached forth to those things that were before. To declare in our love is quite unnecessary and to be lamented. <clears throat> but to attempt a vindication of it, highly reprehensible. It would be tantamount to arguing that we were once too spiritually minded, too tender to conscience, too devoted to God. That we were unduly occupied with Christ and made too much of him. That we overdid our efforts to please him. It is also practically to say we did not find that satisfaction in Christ which he, we expected that we obtained not the peace and pleasure in treading wisdom's ways that we looked for, and therefore that we were obliged to seek happiness in returning to our former pursuits, and thereby we confirmed the sneer of our old companions at the outset, that our zeal would soon be abate, and that we would return again to them. To such renegade, God says, O oh, my people, what have I done to, unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me, Micah 6.3. The fact remains, however, that many do decline from their first love, though they are seldom aware of it until some of its effects appear. They are like foul, foolish Samson who had trifled with temptations and displeased the Lord, and who awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as other times as before and shake myself. And he wits not that the Lord had departed from him, Judges 16.20. Yielding to sin blinds the judgment, and we are unconscious that spirit is grieved and the blessings of God no longer upon us. Our friends may perceive it and feel concerned because of the same, and we ourselves are not aware of it. Then it is those solemn words accurately describe our case. Strangers have devoured thy strength, and he knows it not. Yea, gray hairs are here, and they are upon his head, yet he knoweth not. Hosea 7.9 Gray hairs are a sign of the decay of our constitution and of the approaching decrepitude. So there are some signs which tell the spiritual decline of the Christian, and usually he is oblivious to their presence. We, now, we turn now and point out some of the symptoms of spiritual decline. Since sin works so deceitfully, and Christians are unconscious of the beginnings of retrogression, it is important that the signs thereof should be described. Once again, we find that the natural adumbrates the spiritual, and if due attention is paid thereto, much that is profitable for the soul may be learned therefrom. Constipation is either due to Constipation is either due to self-neglect or faulty diet, and when sin clogs the soul, it's because we have neglected the work of mortification and failed to eat the bitter herbs. Exodus 12.8 Loss of appetite, paleness of countenance, dullness of eye, absence of energy are so many evidences that not all is well with the body, and that we are on the way to serious illness unless things are sooner or righted. And each of those has its spiritual counterpart, irritability, inability to relax, the loss of sleep, are the precursors of nervous breakdown, and the spiritual equivalents are a call to return thy rest unto thy soul. Psalm 116.7 In cases of leprosy, real or supposed, the Lord gave orders that the individual should, carefully, should be carefully examined, his true state ascertained, and judgment be given accordingly. And just so far as the spiritual disease is more odious and dangerous than a physical one, by so much it is necessary for us to form a true judgment concerning it. Every spot is not leprosy. And every imperfection of the Christian does not indicate he is in spiritual decline. Even the Apostle Paul groaned over his inward corruptions and confessed that he had not yet attained, nor was he already perfect, but pressed forward to the mark for the pride for the high calling. 
Yet those honest admissions were very far from being acknowledgments that he was a backslider, or that he had given way to an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Great care has to be taken on either side, lest the one hand we call darkness light and excuse ourselves, and on the other we call light darkness and needlessly write, uh, write bitter things against ourselves. Undoubtedly, more are in danger of doting, of doing the former than the latter. If there are Christians, and probably not a few, who wrongly depreciate themselves, draw erroneous conclusions and suppose our case is worse than it is. For instance, there are those who grieve because they are no longer conscious of the energetic zeal or that fervent and tender affections which they were sensible in the day of their espousals. But a change in their natural constitution from an increase of years will account for that. Their animal spirits have waned, their natural energy is diminished, their mental faculties are duller. Yet though there may be there may be less tender and warm feelings, they may be more stability and depth in them. Many things relating to the present world in which our youth would would produce tears, yet will not have that effect as we mature. Though there may be with greater weight on our spirits to confuse the absence of the brightness and excitement of youth with spiritual decline and coldness is a serious mistake. On the other hand, every departure from God must be reckoned a moral imperfection. May not must not be reckoned a mere imperfection. <clears throat> what is common to all the regenerate? Alas, the tendency uh, with writer and reader alike is to flatter himself that his spot is only the spot of God's children. Deuteronomy 32.5 Or, such as the best of Christians are subject unto, and therefore to conclude there is nothing very evil or dangerous about it. Though we may not yet pretend or deny that we have any faults, yet are we not ready to regard them lightly and say of some sin, as Lot said of Zoar? Oh, it is not a little one. Is it not a little one? Or to exclaim unto one, unto one we have wronged, what have we done so much against thee? But such a self-justifying uh, spirit evidence is a most unhealthy state of heart, and is to be steadfastly resisted. The Apostle Paul spoke of a certain condition of soul which he feared he should find in the, the Corinthians, that of having sinned and, not, and yet not repented of their deeds. And where that is the case, spiritual decay has reached an alarming state. Here are some of the symptoms of, of spiritual decline. Number one, <clears throat> waning of our love to Christ, for Christ. If the Lord Jesus is less precious to our souls than he was formerly, in his person, office, work, grace, and benefits, whatever we may think of ourselves, we have assuredly gone back. If we have a lower esteem of the lover of our souls, if our delight in him was decreased, if our meditations upon his perfections are more infrequent, if we consume less, commune less with him, then grace in us has certainly suffered a relapse. It is the nature of certain plants to turn their faces toward the light. So it is of indwelling grace to strongly incline thine heart unto heavenly objects and to take pleasure therein. But if we neglect the means of grace and are not careful to avoid sinful pleasures or suffer ourselves to be weighted down by concerns and cares of this life, then will our affections indeed be damned and our minds rendered vain and carnal as it is only by acts of faith on the glory of Christ that we are changed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 So a diminishing of such views of him will cause our hearts to become chilled and lifeless. Number two. Abatement of our zeal for the glory of God. As the principle of grace in the believer causes him to have assurance of divine mercy to him through the mediator, so it inspires concern for the divine honor. As that principle is healthy and vigorous, it will cause us to refuse whatever displeases and dishonors God and his cause and inspire us to practice those duties with a special pleasure which are most conductive to the glory of God, and which give the clearest evidence of our subjection to the royal scepter of Christ. 
If the new nature be duly nourished and kept lively, it will influence it to bring forth fruit unto the praise of God. But if that new nature be starved or become sickly, our concern for God's glory will greatly decrease. If we have become less conscious, conscientious than formerly of whether our conduct become or be, being, uh, bring reproach upon the holy name we bear, then that is a sure mark of our spiritual decline. Number three, the loss of spiritual appetite. Was there not a time, dear reader, when you would truly say, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy of rejoicing my heart, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. If you cannot honestly affirm that today, that today, then you have retrograded. You may indeed be keener a keener Bible student than ever before and spend more time than previously in searching the scriptures, but that proves nothing to the point. It is not an intellectual interest, but a spiritual relish for the bread of life that we are now treating of. Do we really savor the things that are of God, the precepts as well as the promises, the portions that search and wound as well as comfort? Do we not, do we not merely wish to understand its prophecies and mysteries, but really hunger and thirst after righteousness? If we prefer ashes to the heavenly manna, the husks, which the swine feed on to the fatted calf, secular literature than sacred, then that is an evidence of a spiritual decline. Number four, sluggishness or drowsiness of mind. One is in a sad frame when exercise before God and communion with him are supplanted by carnal ease. In spiritual tuper, it is much the same as in the, in the natural. Our senses are no longer exercised to discern good and evil. We neither see nor hear what we ought. Nor can we be impressed and affected by spiritual objects as we should. While in such conditions, spiritual duties are neglected, or at most performed perfunctorily and mechanically, so that we are none the better for them. If spiritual duties be attended to from custom or, con or conscience rather than from love, they neither honor God nor profit ourselves. Though the outward exercise be gone through, the spirit of it is lacking. The heart is no longer in them. Those who read the Bible or say their prayers as a matter of form or habit perceive no change in themselves. But those who are accustomed to treat with God in them and then discover a disinclination there or two may know that grace in them has languished. If we have no delight in them, then we are in a sad case. Now, we have to be careful with this here. Um, G. Adams is really good on this in his books on counseling. Um, there are times in your life when you know what the will of God is and you know you should do it and you don't feel like doing it. And Jay Adams emphasizes that you have to just, you have to obey, you have to do it, and keep doing it, and habitually do it, and then your feelings will get in line with your duty. So you have to, you know, just keep that in mind. Uh, what, what, what Pink says is generally true, but you have to keep in mind, um, you know, loving your neighbor doesn't mean having an emotional feeling toward your neighbor, it means treating him lawfully, and then the emotions will get in line with that. Being good to your wife or being good to your husband, uh, you may not feel like doing that at a certain time, but you have to obey anyway. And then your feelings, if you obey and habitually obey, your feelings will get in line. Uh, so I would recommend reading Jay Adams on that. He's really good. Although what Pink is saying, I understand what he's saying, and he's generally correct. Number five, relaxing in our watchfulness against sin. The want of alertness and guarding against all that is evil under a quick and tender sense of its loathsome nature is a sure sign of spiritual decline. Refusing to keep our hearts with all diligence, indifference to the working of our corruptions, trifling with temptations without, are certain evidences of the decay of personal holiness. When the new nature is healthy and vigorous, sin is exceedingly sinful to the saint, because he then has a clear and forcible apprehension of its malignity and contrariety to God. And that, 
uh, forcible apprehension is, uh, and that maintains in him a total indignation against it. While the mind is engaged in considering the awful price which was paid for the remission of our sins, a detestation of evil is stirred up in the heart. And that is attended with strict watchings, for the renewed soul cannot counteract countenance that which was the procuring cause of our Savior's death. Such an exercise of grace has been obstructed if sin now appears less heinous, and there is less care in maintaining a watch against it. Very good. This, this is out. Pink is excellent on this stuff. Number six, attempting to defend our sins. There are some sins which all know are indefensible. But there are others which even professing Christians seek to justify. It is almost surprising to see what ingenuity people will exercise when seeking to find excuses where self is concerned. The cunning of the old serpent, which appeared in all the excuses of our first parents, seems here to supply the place of wisdom. Those possessing little person uh, perspicuity in general matters are singularly quick-sighted in discovering every circumstance that appears to make, to make in their favor or serves to extenuate their faith. Sin, when we have committed it, loses its sinfulness and appears in a very different thing from which it did in others. When a sin is committed by us, it is common to give it another name. Covetousness becomes thrift, malignant, malignant contentions, fidelity for the truth, fanaticism, zeal for God. And thereby we become reconciled to it and are ready to enter, into, enter on a vindication instead of patiently confessing and forsaking it. And this is an excellent point, and... Unfortunately, what happens is, is there are certain sins that become accepted in the Christian community at large. And therefore, since everybody else accepts it as okay, then we say, well, it's okay. You know, like gossip, for example, um, adopting a, a lax attitude toward doctrine, for example, uh, corruptions in worship, uh, Christmas and uninspired hymns and all these things that are clearly corruptions. They just become acceptable sins because everybody else accepts it. And so uh, we accept it too. And, we, you know, that's a very dangerous thing. Gossip is extremely common and very popular, and it's still it's considered a, a horrible sin. And if you look at the passage uh, where it, was it Leviticus, which says "Love your neighbor as yourself," the context there is not to gossip against him, but to go to him privately. It's the Old Testament equivalent of Matthew eighteen: "Love your neighbor as yourself." And then an example of that is, is is if he commits a sin or he's doing something wrong, you go to him privately, you discuss it with him privately, and you work it out and you help him overcome that sin. You don't go tail-bearing, and you don't go around gossiping about him. Yet, gossip is extremely frequent, and if you go to Presbyterian meetings and Synod meetings, and gen generally speaking, uh, they're gossip sessions. Number seven. Things of the world obtaining control of us. In proportion as the objects of the scene have power to attract our hearts, to that extent is faith inoperative and ineffectual. It is the very nature of faith to occupy us with spirit spiritual, heavenly, and eternal objects. And as they become real and precious, our affections are drawn out to them. And the baubles of time and sense lose all value to us. When the soul is communing with God, delighting itself in his ineffable perfections, such trifles as our dress, the furnishing of our homes, the glittering show made by the rich of this world, make no appeal to us. When the Christian is ravished by the excellency of Christ in the inimitable portion of or heritage, he has in him the pleasures and vanities which charm the ungodly will not have any, have no allurement, but will pall upon him. It therefore follows that when a Christian begins to th a thirst after the things of time and sense and evidence is a fondness for them, his grace has sadly declined. 
Those who find satisfaction in anything pertaining to this life have already forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed them out, broken cisterns that hold no water, Jeremiah 2.13. In, in, in uh, just a comment here, I mean, there are things in law that are lawful. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car. There's nothing wrong with having good furniture. There's nothing wrong with having nice clothes. There are things that are lawful, but become out of due proportion to spiritual duties and taking care of spiritual matters that become uh, a species of idolatry. You know, a person can, uh, for example, you need to work hard six days a week. And you do need a certain amount of entertainment. You do need a certain amount of relaxation. But when that becomes your existence, entertainment and hedonism, uh, to the uh, neglect of working six days, to the neglect of doing your Christian duties, to the neglect of Christian dominion, then it becomes a species of idolatry. So we have to we have to have a balance. Uh, on the, you know, we're not to be monks, but on the other hand, we're to we're to hold things in a proper balance, and place Christ first in everything. And then we come to chapter, it's recovery. <clears throat> and this is chapter 11. We shall attempt little more here than seeking to show the necessity of recover from a spiritual decline. Nor will that be an easy task. Not because of any inherent difficulty in this aspect of our subject, but owing to the variety of cases which need to be considered and which should be dealt with separately. There are some physical ailments which, if handled promptly, call for comparatively mild treatment, but there are others that demand more drastic means and remedies. Yet, as any doctor will testify, many are careless about what they deem trifling disorders and delay so long in attending to the same that their condition so deteriorates as to become dangerous and often fatal. In the last chapter, we pointed out that every spot was not leprosy. Yet it should not be remembered that certain spots should be, which resemble that disease, arouse suspicion and require that the patient be examined by the priest, isolated from others and kept under his observation until the case could be more definitely determined, depending upon whether there was further deterioration or spreading of the spot. Leviticus 13, 4 to 8. It is much to be doubted if there is any Christian on earth who so retains his spiritual vitality and vigor that he never stands in need of reviving of his heart. Isaiah 58.15 That there is no time when he feels it requisite to cry, Quicken thou me according to thy word, Psalm 119.25. Yet it must not be concluded from the statement that every saint experiences a definite relapse in his spiritual life, and still less that a life of ups and downs, decays and recoveries, backslidings and restorations is the best that can be expected. The experiences of others is not the rule which God has given us to walk by. Crowded dis dispensaries and hospitals do indeed supply a warning, but they certainly do not warrant uh, my lapsing into carelessness or fatalistically assuming I too will ere long be physically affected. God has made full provision for his people to live a holy, healthy, and happy life. And if I observe many of them failing to do so, it should stimulate me to greater watchfulness against the neglect of God's provision. And remember the old, uh, the teaching of the law of God, the moral law, and covenant faithfulness. And the prophet said, I think it's Isaiah or Jeremiah, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. In other words, you've suffered covenant curses from your disobedience, your backslidings, but if you repent and return and obey the moral law of God habitually, you will eat the good of the land. You will receive covenant blessings. 
<clears throat> and uh, it's just a fact of life. And the covenant blessings extend into the new covenant era for habitual obedience to the law. Do bad things happen to good people? They do. But the general principle is if you obey the law of God and you walk uprightly and don't allow yourself to backslide and keep be diligent, you will be blessed. <clears throat> After what has been discussed in previous chapters, it would scarcely be necessary to remind the leader, the reader, that unless the Christian maintains close and steady communion with God, daily intercourse with and drawing from Christ the fullness and regular feeding on the word, the pulse of his spiritual life will soon beat more feebly and irregularly. Unless he often meditates on the love of God, keeps fresh before his heart the humiliation and sufferings of Christ, and frequents the throne of grace, his affections will soon cool, his relish for spiritual things will decrease, and obedience will neither be easy nor pleasant. If such a deterioration be ignored or excused, it will not be long ere his heart glides imperceptibly into carnality and worldliness. Worldly pleasures will begin to attract. Worldly pursuits absorb more of his attention, or worldly cares weigh him down. Then, unless there be a return to God and humbling of his heart before him, it will not be ere long, unless providence hinder before he can be found in ways of open transgression. <clears throat> there are degrees of backsliding. In the case of the real child of God, it always commences in the heart's departure from him. And where that be protracted, evidences thereof will soon appear in the daily walk. Once a Christian becomes a backslider outwardly, he has lost his distinguishing character, for then there is little or nothing to distinguish him from religious worlding. Backsliding always presupposes a profession of faith and adherence unto Christ, though not necessarily the existence or reality of the thing professed. An unregenerate professor may be sincere, though deluded, and may be, from various considerations, perverse in his profession to the very end. But more frequently, he soon wearies of it, and after the novelty has worn off, or the demands that made upon him become more intolerable, he abandons his profession, and like the sow, returns to his wallowing in the mire. Such is the apostate, and with very rare exceptions, if indeed there be any at all, his apostasy is total and final. <coughs> and... Uh, when I when I was first a professor, I was very very evangelistic, and I kept tabs on all these people that I brought to Christ. And uh, let's say let's say there's 50 people uh, over the years. Out of that 50, I think there's two left that are professing Christians. Some lasted for many years. Some became elders. Some became pastors, and they fall by the wayside and become more consistent with their unregenerate heart. It's sad, but it happens. Now, up to the beginning of this chapter, we had confined ourselves to the spiritual life of the regenerate, but we have now reached the stage where faithfulness to souls requires us to enlarge our scope. Under our last division, we dwelt upon spiritual decline, its nature, its causes, its insidiousness, and its symptoms. It is pertinent, therefore, to inquire now, what will be the sequel to such a decline? A general answer cannot be cannot be returned for the decline varies considerably in different cases, some be, being less and some more acute and extended than others. The outcome is not always the same. Where the relapse of a Christian be marked, if not to himself, yet to onlookers, he's entered the class of backsliders, and that will cause the spiritual to stand in doubt of him. It is in this consideration which requires us to enlarge the class in which we now address our remarks, otherwise unregenerate professors who have deteriorated in the religious life 
would be likely to de derive false comfort from that which applies only to those who have been temporarily despoiled by Satan. Think, for example, King David. <coughs> King David entered into adultery. Uh, he didn't repent of it right away, and he entered into it long for quite a while, and then he committed murder to cover up his sin. So King David was in a backslidden state for quite a period of time. Now, he did repent, but he suffered great judgment and covenant sanctions because of it, a calamity coming upon his family. Um, Peter's another example, although Peter denied Christ but repented right away. So there are different examples in Scripture of true people of God uh, who backslid. I mean, look at King Solomon with his problem with women. Now, we can assume he repented to a degree because he wrote sections of Scripture, and God wouldn't have unregenerate writing sections of Scripture. Unless spiritual decline be arrested, it will not remain stationary, but become worse. And the worse it becomes, the less we are justified to regard, regarding it as a spiritual decline, and the more does Scripture require to view it as a, the exposure of a worth, worthless profession. Hence, it is that any degree of spiritual deterioration is regarded not complacently, but as something serious. And if we are not promptly corrected, as highly dangerous in its tendency. But Satan will attempt to persuade that Christian that though his zeal has abated somewhat and his spiritual affections cool, there is nothing for him to worry about. That even as his health has begun to decline, yet seeing he has not fallen into any great sin, his condition is not at all serious. This is Satan saying this. But every decay is dangerous, especially such as the mind is ready to excuse and plead for a continuous continuance therein. The nature and deadly tendency of sin is the same itself, whether it be an unregenerate or a regenerate person. And if it be not resisted and mortified, repented of and forsaken, the outcome will be the same. Then lust hath conceived to bring forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. James 1, 15 and 16. Three stages of spiritual decline are solemnly set before us in Revelation. Revelations 2 and 3. I think we'll stop here. Because uh, I don't want I want to keep this in the same talk. Um, <clears throat> you'll meet people who are in a terrible spiritual state and they don't think anything is wrong at all, and then uh, you'll meet people who fall into gross sin and then they repent and they you know get get back to where they should be. And there's a distinction there. Some people don't repent. But people who do need to be received back into the church. You have the example in Corinth where a guy was uh, committing incest with his uh, mother-in-law, with his, his father's wife, who was not his actual mother, but that's still incest, and he was excommunicated. He repented. And then Paul demanded because he really sincerely repented, Paul demanded, look, receive him back and quit treating him bad. He repented. So we have, we have, we, we have terrible tendencies either to have acceptable sins where repentance is not, even, not expected and people don't care, and then we have situations where people do repent and then they're treated like scum and they're never forgiven, which is totally evil. So we have to be very wary. We have to be very careful. But we'll continue this next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our our brother here, and uh, for considering this, we we pray for a good summer, a summer of learning more about Christ and, and spiritual growth. Convict us, Lord, when we 
play with sin in our minds, convict us so that we do not enter into temptation deliberately. Convict us so that we fight sin at every turn, that we, do not, we don't feed the sinful flesh, that we starve it daily and are diligent in studying and learning more about your son and loving him on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen.